Hello there, I'm Patrick Strofe, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Ed Bryant, president and CEO of Samford Advisors. Samford Advisors is the most active investment banking firm in Canada, focusing on the lower middle market tech sector, specifically software M&A. Samford also has an office here in Austin, Texas. Ed was recently named by Axial as a member of the top 20 thought leaders in the lower middle market for 2020. So as we get into 2021, who better to have on to talk about M&A in the software space? Ed, thanks for joining me. Thanks uh, for coming along. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, talk today. Now, before we get into Samford Advisors and and the tech the tech sector, let's set the table with our audience and give give them a little context with you. How did you get to this point in your career? Yeah, it's uh, it's involved a few continents and a few countries. So I grew up in the UK. I graduated in 1996, so just before the first kind of real tech wave. Um, I went and joined Morgan Stanley Investment Banking, uh, focused on tech media telecom in their Hong Kong office, um, and then got poached by Deutsche Bank to move to Singapore. And then Deutsche Bank said, did you want to go to New York? And every investment banker's dream is working in New York, like the, in terms of the deal flow and everything. It's, uh, it's the investment banking mecca, if, 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 that, if that exists. So um, I jumped to that chance and I've always been kind of, you know, very flexible about where I moved to, right? Um, just really open-minded about that. Um, I was in New York for a total of about 12 years. Um, unfortunately, New York is great for investment banking. It's not so great for uh, family life. And so, and balancing young kids and that sort of stuff. And randomly out of the blue in 2012, I got a, a call from a headhunter asking me if I wanted to be VP of M&A for a technology company in Ottawa, Canada, of all places. And most people can't find Ottawa, Canada on a map, uh, even though it's the capital. Um, uh, and I'd been here once before in the, in the summer and it was, it's a beautiful city and, and no one tells you how bad the winter is. And, but we jumped to the chance. My wife is American. We don't have any relations in, in Canada at all. Um, I did that job for a bit. I got promoted to CFO. Um, it was in the mid-market tech sector and there really wasn't anyone doing what we do. So um, that's when I made the leap five years ago to say I'll start my own firm and focus on mid-market tech. And when you were, were coming around on there uh, with Samford, obviously you didn't name it Ed Bryant advisors at Samford. Uh, and I always like asking this to get a feel for the culture is you can tell a lot about a company by how it's named. How did that come about? Yeah, it's a, it's a good story. I, I was of the school of thought that I didn't want it to sound like a one-man band, right? Um, like if you sound bigger than you are, then you usually win better business than you you can, especially starting off. No one knew who we were or anything. And, and so... Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about the name, all the names that I came up with, you know, you go search for the, the web address or the URL and it's unavailable, right? Now you can't get a .com on anything these days. And then um, I heard a story about an Ottawa, a billionaire entrepreneur here who started nearly a hundred companies and he names a lot of his companies after places from his childhood. Um, and so I thought that was kind of cool. It kind of had a little bit of personal meaning to it. So I, 
I was born in a village called Great Sanford in England, like a village of about 50 people, I think it is, uh, is the population. Um, and I was kind of saying Sanford advisors that I just, I was literally like, had GoDaddy up to look for the URL and I just punched in Sanford advisors and it was available in a .com. And I'm like, okay, Sanford advisors it is. So, uh, so it's got lots of good personal meaning to me um, and, and, and everything, but it also, it just sounded right. It sounded like an M&A advisory firm. So. Well, and also, also you're coming from that, that, that real small um, setting and then now you're in focusing on the lower middle market. Let's talk about that real quick because mm-hmm. it's, it's very easy for companies that start small and then as they grow, their clients and their focus grows with it. And that's not uh, that's not the case for you guys. So why the lower middle market? I've got my reasons, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah, I think it's the most underserved. So I'm sitting there in in that technology company. We were doing about a hundred million in revenue, um, and there was one banker that called on me. and And I thought initially I was like, you know, maybe it's just an Ottawa thing. Like Ottawa's a, you know, not Toronto. It's not you know a big city. Um, and but there's a lot of technology companies here. It's like they 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 nickname it the Silicon Valley of the North, but it's not. I don't know whether it's justified or not, but, um, and so I I was just kind of, it left me kind of saying like, is there a gap in the market that matches up with what I do? I, I, I'm a, at my heart, I'm a deal junkie. I love doing transactions, but then also the other side of the coin was that the middle market is the most active part of the market. There's like, you know, especially in Canada, right? So there's not really enough business for the big banks to go around, right? Um, And they're hyper competitive around all the big mandates and everything. And so we just found that focusing on the middle market, it was less competitive. Uh, We didn't face, you know, we faced really no competition in Canada from specialist technology firms. And so we just said, we're going to do one thing. We're going to do it really well. We're going to just focus on technology. We're just going to focus on M&A, not capital raises or anything like that. Um, and we're just going to focus on the middle market. And that laser focus, you know, five years on is really led us to significantly outperform any of our competitors just because they don't specialize like we do. And, and therefore, they can't talk about the transactions the way we do. They can't talk about the buyer universe the way we do. They just are not well versed in valuation. So that has really paid dividends focusing on the middle market rather than trying to focus on really large transactions. So. You know, and that's a real special skill set is dealing with the M&A as opposed to capital raises, because M&A, I like to think about, is the most exciting event in business, okay? And unlike others would argue that maybe an IPO is a bigger deal or more exciting than, than an M&A, but M&A has the potential to be a life-changing event. And sometimes, in some cases, sure. generational uh, yeah. event. And there are a lot of moving parts to it. There are a lot of unique things that happen. There's a lot of stress because, again, you have this life-changing event hanging in the balance, and that just adds to the complexity of the deals and, and the worry that's out there. And to be an organization that focuses just on that transaction element as opposed to the other services, you can help a client raise two, three rounds, and that's nice. But once you get to the real big uh, rubber meets the road on those M&A, you need somebody that can handle that and knows all the ins and outs. And I think it's also particularly great that you've got these 
great focus and services and expertise that you find in an institution like Goldman Sachs. But at, mm-hmm. the lo- at, at the lower middle market target, and Goldman and the large institutions, they're fabulous. We need them to handle Apple and, and Microsoft and all that. But, you know, the, the lower middle market is underserved where they have huge needs and it doesn't take a lot to get those me- needs met. And to have somebody that has not only the bandwidth to handle it, the experience and the focus, but the desire. I mean, that's what we're trying to do is find organizations and, and shout out about organizations like Samford to say to people in the lower middle market in the middle market, hey, everything you need is right here. And had we not talked about it, they probably never would have heard about it. And unfortunately, they get underserved and overcharged if they just default to the brand names and the institutions. This is why I'm just so excited to meet more, more organizations like yours that are helping these people with literally, again, life-changing events. Now, yeah, and, and, and that is especially true in the mid-market, right? Because a lot of the entrepreneurs that we help, their life savings are tied up in their businesses. So um, they don't have, you know, they've poured everything into their business, not only their capital, but also their all their time. And so even for the middle market, it's even more life-changing than, you know, for some of the large companies. And then you mentioned a good point. Obviously, Goldman Sachs, RBC here in Toronto, like others are really good at M&A, but they can't make enough money to cover their costs at below $150 million deal size. And, uh, and really, we find ourselves, we never go up against the big guys on any of our deals. We're going up against Deloitte or KPMG or PwC, and they don't do enough technology deals to understand, especially software, to understand the market, to understand the buyers and how, how to think about valuation. Now, you mentioned you've got the experience, the familiarity, and the focus, particularly with that niche in, in the software, because technology, just like healthcare, it's, it's more than software hardware. It's all these different you know, uh, buckets that can be filled. What else besides those three I just mentioned are the things that Sanford Advisors brings to the table? Well, so you know, it's understanding the business model and how to sell it is very important. So just really understanding, like, how does the money flow? How does the company make money? Where do they sit in the marketplace? Where, what's the competitive landscape look like? That's really important because if you don't understand that, you can't sell it, right? You can't sell it to someone if you don't understand what you're selling. Um, the other thing is that we know, you know, we made a big deal about pushing the private equity relationships. So when I was at Deutsche Bank, we used to deal with all the big tier one you know, private equity guys like Blackstone and Apollo and, 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 and KKR and all those guys. But they're not the kind of folks that are buying businesses of sub $150 million in, in deal size. So we made a, a big push very early on seeing that the private equity wave was coming into tech. Um, and so we have 500 plus middle market private equity relationships. Um, and and we, we foster those very actively, just like we do our, our prospects. Uh, but then also the connectivity that we have. So we're in Canada, but we have tons of connectivity into the U.S. Because myself, I was in the U.S. for 12 years. My other senior guy in, in Texas has been there for a, a number of years. And so we have strategic relationships as well that we can bring to the table for our clients. So I think that's kind of, you know, sector focus is really important, um, obviously, when thinking through this sort of stuff. But it's also important when thinking through who's the who who you're matchmaking with and why 
why should they care about buying a company out of Toronto for 20 million bucks or 30 million bucks or whatever it is? Um, really thinking through that and that level of expertise is, is critical. So can you give us an idea of just how much, because this is largely a U.S. Um, uh, market here for, for us, but also I, I can say you've actually bridged uh, Rubicon now. So we are now international thanks to you guys. Right. <laughs> um, what percentage of your business deal, either deal flow or, or sellers or buyers, give us a feel on uh, how much work you're doing in Canada versus the U.S.? So most of the time we're representing Canadians, but in honesty, we're selling them to Americans. So um, Americans have the most money, um, like uh, both on the financial side, but also on the strategic side, Mm -hmm. the depth of the market, capital markets is there. So um, I would say last year, uh, 80, 90% of our deals were cross-border, representing a Canadian selling to an American. Um, and at about the same percentage were private equity or private equity backed companies as well. So that's, especially in the mid market, like if you look at the overall M and a market, private equity makes up about 35, 40% of software M and a deals, but in the mid market, it's much higher. I think it's probably 60, 70% because they're kind of add on acquisitions. So um, yeah, that's that's been a, an important kind of trend for us. Uh, but the, it, most of our stuff is cross-border. For sure. Is a lot of that, I think we might address this later, but, you know, since we're on the subject right now, is is the idea of the lower middle market, the volume of deals out there, is it because software as an industry is just so fragmented? Yes. Yeah. So the, it really is like either, you know, and there's been so much more money, early stage money going into technology and software over the last 10, 20 years. So, um, and, and we see it every day on the private equity side, private equity firms that have never invested in a software business are uh, calling us and saying, we want to do our first software acquisition. What do you, what do you have that you can show us? Um, because everyone realizes in, you know, tech is outperforming and, um, and they need exposure to that, that piece. So, yeah, it's, it's a very fragmented market across multiple different sub-verticals within, within software. Um, and that lends itself to a lot of software companies that have kind of between five and 25 million of revenue, which is kind of our, our sweet spot. Yeah. Roll out your, um, your profile of an ideal client for, for you where, sure. where you guys just do fabulous work. Yeah. So north of 5 million of revenue for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly software, but we do do some telecom and, and kind of new media, like internet stuff as well. Um, uh, mostly like bootstrapped companies as well. So not VC backed companies. We find that, you know, the VCs are typically trying to roll the dice for a, for a outsized outcome. Um, and that makes it a little bit more difficult to get deals done in the mid market. Right. Um, so yeah, most of our companies, I would say like of the 10 deals that we did last year, I think, uh, most of them, if not all of them were bootstrapped companies. And that leads itself to a different profile as well, that because they're bootstrapped, they've been conservative about their cash flow and everything yeah. like that, which is actually an important metric, right? In, in terms of not, especially with the private equity guys, the private equity guys will pay very good multiples, but they won't pay very good multiples for software businesses losing a lot of money. Um, they want it to be break even or better. Um, otherwise, they, they probably don't look at it. So that's that's the typical profile. And then I would say, most of our clients are probably have been at it for five to 10 years or more. Um, and, and looking, you know, 
this is their nest egg and looking to monetize on their nest egg and, and, uh, and potentially retire. One of the biggest developments that's happened in the M&A space, and we can talk about COVID later, but uh, the ability to remove a real tense element of the M&A negotiations, and that's usually involving the indemnification, where you know sellers don't realize until they actually start hammering out the deal terms with the prospective buyer that the uh, owner and founder can be held personally liable to the buyer for a breach of the seller reps that happened after closing, where it's beyond the owner's knowledge. They don't, they're not aware of it, but it's yet their money or their home or their future that's on the hook. And so yeah. that gets to be a very sensitive part of negotiations. Um, what's happened, the big development in the last 18 months has been the insurance industry has come in and they have an insurance tool called rep and warranty insurance. Again, was reserved for the you know $100 million plus deals that essentially takes the indemnification obligation away from the seller, transfers it to an insurance company. And therefore, if there is a breach and the buyer suffers financially, buyer doesn't pursue the seller, the buyer comes after the insurance company and collects a check. It's great because then the buyer knows they can be made whole they have a peace of mind, sense of security, but for the seller, they get a clean exit. They usually have little or no money held back in escrow, and yeah. that indemnif- indemnification, you know, burden that's hanging over them now that that's all removed, and it's a great win-win out there. And you know, the news about the availability of rep and warranty for deals as low as fifteen million in transaction value really was interrupted and didn't get out there because you know, of the pandemic. And usually this information is shared during conferences and stuff. So I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Tell me about any experience you guys have had with your clients and rep and warranty. Yes. It's it's very interesting because that that timeframe very much lines up with my experience. So like three or four years ago, none of our clients even considered it um and more recently like uh so we haven't done a deal with reps and warranties insurance we've had a in the last 12 months we've had a couple of clients get quotes for it um to kind of see where it kind of laid out versus the risk and and then they made a determination that they didn't need it but we've actually got our first deal right now that has reps and warranties insurance um and um from an M&A banker's perspective i i would love all my deals to be done with reps and warranties insurance it makes my life a lot easier than haggling over some of the reps and warranties and the indemnifications especially in our business around ip intellectual property is the biggest one that everyone always gets hang, hung up on and if you can't have a knowledge qualifier like you know you don't you don't know if you're infringing someone's patent right? Like, how do you know you're a small Toronto based software company? How do you know if you're infringing a competitor's patent or someone else's patent? And when you get acquired by a big buyer, the spotlight gets thrown on you a little bit, and then maybe attention from patent trolls or, or whatever it is. So um, this one that we're doing right now, like a few weeks away from closing, and, and it will have reps and warranties insurance. But so far, I think, I'm pretty encouraged by using it more and more um, and, and people get more and more comfortable with that. And especially the, on the buyer's side, like the buyer's getting comfortable that they go to an insurance company instead of 
the 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 sellers. But I, I think it's a great tool, and and I'd love to see more of it. To be honest, what uh, another investment banking firm shared with me this is over a year ago, but I think it's still pretty consistent. Is their observation was internally, if a deal is insured, it's eight times more likely to close successfully than uninsured deals. So I think that you got all that uh, positive momentum going there. I would also uh, emphasize that when it comes to the cost of the insurance, it's often split evenly between buyer and seller. However, I have, as we're having conversations with strategics now, uh, where we essentially explain to them, look, you can go to your target company and say, you have this much of an escrow and this size of an indemnification, or we will get insurance, which will need you to cover the cost. You'll now have either a tiny or no indemnity uh, exposure, and the escrow is now the deductible of the policy, which is a fraction. Okay, which way do you want to go? I would tell you from experience, I haven't done this many deals, but 99 out of 100 deals, the seller will take that option to be insured. They just they do that and move on. It's just nice because there are so many of these transactions happening in this now eligible uh, part of the marketplace. So we're, we're very, very excited about that. Um, I'm also reminded, as you were talking about software a little while ago, about a comment that I heard where somebody said, you know, uh, software isn't limited to just other technology firms. Uh, in the wake of McDonald's buying an artificial intelligence firm uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago for a couple billion, you know what? Everybody is now a technology firm. Uh, are yes. you seeing are you seeing that and you know share with me some other trends that you've seen with regard just software since the covid and and so forth yeah i think uh is financial and strategic buyers that haven't historically bought software companies are realizing that everything is becoming technology enabled so like you've brought up a good point mcdonald's most of their recent acquisitions have not been of, of restaurants or anything to do with supply chain around food um, they're all around technology, you know, and they're all about how do they, you know, serve their customers better through the use of technology. So um, McDonald's is a great example. And I think, you know, we, we're seeing more and more in our processes talking to non-technology companies about buying our clients. Um, and I think that's that's very encouraging. Um, I would say, like I mentioned earlier, on the private equity side, we're getting more and more calls like every couple of weeks from a private equity firm that has no, you know, we, we had one from a, you know, pretty much dominated energy private equity firm the other week that said, we need technology in our portfolio. Help us think through how do we do it? What should we buy? That sort of stuff. What should our exposure be? But it's, so it's clear that not only on the financial side, but also on the strategic side, everyone's very focused on tech. And I think that's going to make tech uh, M&A, you know, give it real um, tail winds behind it over the next few years as as not only technology companies buy technology companies, but non-technology companies buy technology companies as well. Well, Ed, we're now in a new year and I, I love talking to thought leaders and you're, you're recognized as a top 20 thought leader by Axial for lower middle market. Why don't you share with me in the audience, you know, what trends do you see either on a macro M&A side mm-hmm. or for um, Sanford advisors? So I think we're going to be even busier than we were last year. So we, you know, we, we, you know, three X, three X, four X our business last year and did 10 deals. Um, I think we're going to do 
20 plus deals this year. And I think, um, I think there's a couple of things that are really fueling that, right? Um, our focus exclusively on tech, I think that helps a lot, right? The M&A market in general is, is, is pretty hot, but with it, within that, tech is the hottest sector. Maybe, maybe healthcare along with it, right? Um, but like most of the other sectors are not experienced anywhere like the volume or increase of, of transactions. I think the other thing as well is like really what's fueling a lot of the mid-market now, now, as I mentioned earlier, is the add-on acquisitions that private equity guys are doing for their portfolio companies. And they're getting more and more aggressive. They're doing them at a greater velocity. And so I think you're going to see even more private equity-backed M&A deals in the software space next year or this year, sorry, uh, for sure. So I wouldn't be surprised if um, we you know, hit a new record in terms of the amount of, of tech and software M&A this year. Um, the only, you know, nervousness for me is just like, you know, um, is there a more macro shock that could change that, right? Um, you know, the, the equity markets are pretty strong right now and the valuations, especially for technology companies, are, for public technology companies are really high and the IPO market is really hot. So, you know, at some point the 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 music stops and, and things slow down. Um, but I would think we've got enough legs on this this momentum to kind of keep us, you know, carrying on through this year at, at peak kind of M and A volumes. So I, I think that's that's my view. Like uh, more of this, more of the same. Like really, if you look at last year, last year was a record in terms of the dollar volume going into software M and A. But we missed a quarter. Like we only re- like the second quarter was a terrible quarter for for M and A, right? And so, um, it really, that record number was hit in three quarters. And so, I think like if the volume continues at the pace that it did in the fourth quarter, we'll be way way ahead of what we were last year. So, has anything changed in in tech or software as a result of COVID? I mean, we always default and think of Zoom, but. Um, you know, any, any observations you have on that front? I think there's a real bifurcation because there is a whole swath of technology companies that have been impacted by COVID. So like if you, like we know companies that do software for airports or software for travel agents and anything that's been economically exposed, those businesses, even though they're software or technology companies are struggling as well. Um, and so that's actually then taken, I don't know how much percent of the market is taken out, but is it 20%, 30% of technology companies that can't be sold in this, this environment? So it's almost like the same amount of capital is going after less opportunities, right? Um, sure. But the, the good software companies are still growing. Um, I think they did have a bit of a pause, right, in terms of signing up new customers and that sort of stuff in in 2020, but that seems to have recovered a lot in the fourth quarter of last year. And so good software companies that are still growing are are still getting sold. And if anything, because of that scarcity and the money, the amount of money that's chasing them, valuations have increased through COVID, which uh, I, you know, as I sat here last March, I, I wouldn't have expected that for sure. Yeah, I would think that as people go to embrace technology that's been around like Zoom, and become more familiar, they're more open to do other technological solutions for outsourcing and remote work and so forth. So for I can sure. see yeah. a, lot, a lot of resources there that have been on the sideline that people just weren't familiar with were forced 
to learn and forced to get comfortable with. And now they're, they're standard operating procedure. Yeah. And any of those sectors that are remote work or, you know, cybersecurity, anything that like um, touches on facilitating a distributed workforce is, is so hot right now. It's, it's crazy. Um, and I wouldn't underemphasize like even like in the background, some of the networking security um, and cybersecurity, that sort of stuff that you don't necessarily tie like zoom. You can look at and say, okay, I get it. Like zoom's going through the, through the roof because everyone's doing video calls but there's all these other applications and software companies in the background that are really benefiting from from this newly distributed workforce um and and those valuations have gone pretty crazy so well ed this has been real helpful and very very informative i really appreciate this and again thanks for helping us step cross-border ourselves here with this how can our audience find you so i'm very active and so is our firm on LinkedIn. So that's probably the, the best place to find us. Um, Google Samford Advisors and you'll find us, remember the P. Uh, but even if you, or if you Google Canada Tech M&A will come up uh, in a lot of different places, but it's yeah, samfordadvisors.com and then on, on LinkedIn under Samford Advisors as well. Well, you're number one in Canada. Let's see what you do with your outposts in Texas and see how you can grow that area because Texas is actually considered the Silicon Valley of the energy industry and they're going tech like you said. So best of luck. Thank you very much. Thanks Patrick. I really appreciate it.